Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden has made a last-ditch appeal to voters to reject candidates who peddle in falsehoods or exhibit anti-democratic tendencies as Republicans gain ground in national and local polls by playing up uh, inflation, crime, and immigration fears. Uh, Precision Russian airstrikes across Ukraine have severed uh, the country's electrical and water networks as winter approaches as Kiev calls on the international community for more weaponry to defeat Uh, the threat and help rebuild shattered infrastructure. After Ukraine attacked Russia's Black Sea fleet in Sevastopol uh, with air and sea surface drones, Moscow ended a grain export deal only to extend it uh, again days later. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has called on Turkey to quickly approve Finland and Sweden's request to join NATO, as all eyes are on whether Ankara and indeed uh, Hungary will agree. British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace has acknowledged the nation's goal of spending 3% of GDP on defense is aspirational in the wake of government-wide spending cuts by his new boss, uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. In Asia, North Korea has launched an unprecedented number of cruise and ballistic missiles in a brief period towards South Korea and Japan, eliciting swift condemnation as the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and his Korean counterpart Lee Jong-suk Uh, met in Washington. Uh, The latest North Korean missile tests are the first since 1952 uh, that landed in South Korean territorial waters. And in Israel, in a move that could presage what happens in the United States, Bibi Netanyahu will will return to power in the most right-wing coalition in the country's history and expected to propose legislative changes to get himself out of the corruption charges he faces. Joining us today, as they do each week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American Security and the co-hosts of uh, the Must Listen to Brussels Sprouts podcast, uh, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome. Great to have you back aboard. Uh, Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, and check out our thoughtful conversation with John Kirby, uh, the coordinator uh, for strategic communications at uh, the National Security Council, speaking in his capacity as a communicator uh, and how uh, senior leaders and communicators should work together to shape uh, messages. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cabas Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cabas, uh, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us again. Michael, let's start with uh, an update on the National Defense Authorization Act and uh, appropriations as they wend their way through the process uh, as we try to seek budgetary nirvana, albeit months behind schedule. 
<laughs> it's becoming the norm now, unfortunately, to be behind schedule. Um, so the NEA conference is uh, continuing to proceed. As you've mentioned previously, the Senate will not have time to consider their own bill on the floor. So they're going to have to consider uh, the conference report. Um, the, the conference has slowed down a little bit, but it's understandable because there is no budget deal yet. So they can't um, come to terms on the numbers and the tables. But most of the policy items uh, that are non-controversial have been resolved. Uh, then they will elevate the remaining items to the big four for when they return uh, after the election. Right now, the plan is to have the NDAA on the floor of the House the week of December 5th. Uh, so that's really good news because, as we mentioned before, we're, bat we're competing for floor time against a lot of other possible items like the Electoral Count Act, marriage equality, tax extenders, uh, hurricane relief, and, and other items. So that is proceeding. There are no talks going on right now as far as appropriations uh, because they're waiting to see what happens with the elections. And then hopefully right after the elections, they can come up with a budget deal and then work through uh, the appropriations process and get a CR. I, I'm not a CR. I, I am confident, though, that they will not get this done by the 16th and will require another short term CR uh, and get this done right before Christmas. Consensus is that Republicans are going to be gaining uh, ground and are on track to win uh, and win big across the country, including uh, likely both uh, houses of Congress. Um, we had the attack on Paul Pelosi, the speaker's husband, uh, which was uh, shocking, although I have to say it has been contorted beyond all reality and recognition by some Republican uh, candidates and not a lot of denunciation from leadership, at least not the kind of denunciations you would expect uh, of uh, the uh, attack. Uh, and even uh, even as the president um, tried to focus people's attention on um, the issue more broadly of disinformation uh, and anti-democratic tendencies that are at stake in this election. What's your take on where we're going to end up on this? Because I know that you do some pretty accurate nose counting um, on, on where we end up, as well as sentiment. Right, there's a lot to unpack there. First, let me start with you know, your mention on the attack on Paul Pelosi. I mean, look, uh, my heart goes out to him and to her. Uh, no elected leader uh, should have to endure what they have endured. Uh, and you know, we did not see the response we're seeing from some Republicans when, um, from Democrats when Steve Scalise was shot uh, several years ago. And you know, I, I do, I, I am happy that you know Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise both called uh, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Mitch McConnell came out publicly. However. Uh, you know, we've seen some despicable behavior from a lot of Republicans in the House and the Senate and uh, candidates running for all sorts of offices, as well as commentators, you know, like like Tucker Carlson. Uh, that to me, is just, just in inexcusable. I mean, we can agree to disagree, but this, this kind of behavior is, is really unacceptable. And, and we were also seeing it not from the former president uh, and from his, his son, uh, Donald Jr. as well. Um, now, as far as the elections go, uh, uh, things are breaking more and more for Republicans every day. Uh, and in fact, uh, Nate Silver's 538 now <clears throat> favors the Republicans to take over the Senate uh, in addition to taking over the House. So today's numbers this morning show the Republicans uh, with 215 seats uh, safely in their column. And that would mean that they would just need to win three of the 25 toss-up seats uh, held by Democrats right now. So the odds are dramatically in their favor. Um, you know, the Senate's got about five toss-up seats. Uh, however, four of those are in Democratic hands right now. Uh, but, you know, look, they still could go either way. Uh, the, the whole election could come down to Georgia again, like it did last time. Uh, a lot of people feel the Georgia race will end up in a runoff because uh, there is a third party candidate. So we may not know until December who controls the Senate. But right now, uh, things are looking uh, fairly bleak uh, for the Democrats. Uh, and, and so oh, go ahead. I was going to comment. You, you, you'd, you'd reference uh, 
Biden's speech uh, the other night. Um, so I, I don't think that really helps uh, the Democrats. I think Biden's speech uh, was problematic in the sense that it, w- it wasn't clear what it was really about. Was it a uh, unity speech or was it a get out the vote speech? Because you really can't have it uh, both ways. Uh, I don't disagree with anything uh, Biden said, by the way, in his speech, but I do think the speech was a mistake. And it's, it's similar to the speech he gave back in September about democracy being at risk. So you really um, have to decide what the speech is about, what's your audience. And if you look at the networks that carried this speech, it was only Fox, CNN and MSNBC. You know, networks like ABC decided it was more important to carry Wheel of Fortune uh, than it was to carry the president's speech. And if I'm the president, I look at those three networks and say, I've got the CNN crowd. I've got the MSNBC crowd. I, if, I, if it were me, I'd be talking to the Fox crowd and appeal to them as Americans uh, to tone down this rhetoric and remind everybody that we're all part of the same American family. We're all looking uh, to achieve the same goals and objectives. We just may disagree on how we get there uh, and, and to appeal to their sense of decency and their sense of patriotism. And instead, you know, he, uh, those, that group really felt that they were being attacked. And I've talked to several Republican staff and several Republican members since the speech, and they're getting an earful uh, from their folks back home. So I don't think that the speech will end up having the desired effect. I, I, I don't think he was that strident. I think he was trying to appeal uh, to folks. It just depends on how far over to that side you are. And I agree, right? But gone are the days where you know, a presidential address gets carried by everybody and you really do need it to be carried by ABC, NBC and CBS to try to get to more of the middle uh, of, of the market as opposed to groups that are self-centering, even though it was very positive to see that, that Fox carried it. But then again, there were also reasons Fox carried it in order to fan the base, right? That depending on the politicized nature of the message, it, it, it gets people worked up because they're getting it uh, uh, fresh. Uh, really quickly, talk to us about the debt deal. Uh, or a debt deal and what the structure, the wireframe of that will look like, right? I mean, especially if Democrats are going to lose power uh, definitively, they're going to want to get, you know, a big enough debt ceiling increase to not have to deal with this issue for the rest of the administration. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about this last week and momentum continues to build this week. Uh, 31 Democrats uh, sent a letter uh, to Pelosi and Schumer uh, <clears throat> imploring them uh, to either raise the debt limit or eliminate it altogether, you know. And again, you know, sign the alarm bells. If Republicans take control of Congress, they're going to use the debt limit as leverage to extract uh, lots of concessions. At, at the same time, it becomes a game of chicken about crashing the economy because Biden has come out saying, you know, he will not yield to GOP demands around the debt limit and feels it's irresponsible. Um, now, Biden is opposed to eliminating the debt ceiling altogether, which puts him at odds with his Treasury Secretary. Uh, Janet Yellen, who would be in favor of eliminating the debt ceiling altogether. Um, and they complicate matters even more on the Republican side. Uh, former President Donald Trump uh, came out yesterday uh, asked, suggesting that McConnell be impeached, though I don't think he can, uh, if he raises the debt limit, because he keeps raising the debt limit over and over again, and he should be impeached for it. Everybody seems to forget the fact that Trump actually signed three debt limit increases while, while he was president. So, you know, truth is getting lost in this. But at the same time, I think there is a growing momentum to try and get this done in the lame duck. One, you know, for the, because it's in the best interest of the country not to threaten to crash our economy next year. But two, it will put the Democrats in a stronger position, not have to negotiate uh, certain uh, budgetary items next year with the Republican majority. Um, I, I find all of this shocking. Shocking, uh, Michael. I'm, I'm stunned. You know, the American people also got a lot of assistance from the U.S. government during the pandemic 
that in turn has fueled inflation a bit. Net net, does that sort of equal out in terms of what came out of people's pockets and what went into people's pockets at a time? I think everybody conveniently forgets um, that uh, there was assistance uh, then um, in, in, indeed, you know, and, and precipitated some of the challenges that we now face. I want to get to uh, Russia, NATO, uh, Asia, and Israel in a minute. But Dove, let me, uh, you had your hand up. Let me give you just a minute to, to weigh in on this political debate uh, and the view from London where you are now. The British that I spoke to are deeply concerned about what's going to happen uh, with funding for Ukraine if the Republicans take over. They watch all the news we watch. They read the papers we read. And they see that there is a significant element in the Republican Party, particularly on the House side, that wouldn't really want to spend any more money on Ukraine. Uh, Now, it's quite possible uh, and may well happen that if the uh, Republicans take both houses, that there will be a lame duck effort to put money into Ukraine, vote money in December, and that'll spend out uh, over the course of six or eight months. And uh, perhaps by that point, something will have been resolved. Uh, But there is a deep concern about this. There's also a concern that uh, the new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, is not really uh, uh, overly enthused about spending more money on defense. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, Minister, the Secretary of State for Defense, Ben Wallace, has already acknowledged they're not going to be really going for 3%. Uh, And as I mentioned last week, Wallace almost resigned anyway. Uh, Sunak's not too excited about this, and that further complicates matters, because if the Congress indeed tries to hold back on spending for Ukraine, then Sunak might do the same thing as well, because to him, it's all one pot of money, and he's never been in the national security world at all. So there's that issue uh, as well that that is worrying them. Then there's another issue, which is the Labor Party's ahead by some 30 or 33 points. All indications are that they're not going to win that big, but they'll be coming back in two years. And none of their leadership has any government experience. Now, the last time Labor was out of office for as long as it's been this time, Harold Wilson came in as prime minister and he had been a minister. And so he knew something about government. Now you've got a group of people, however bright they are, who don't have that experience. And again, how that'll play out against Russia, how that'll play out domestically, is a huge question. So there's a lot of uncertainty here. They're suffering from inflation as we are. Um, they've, they've got problems with energy. Uh, and so this is a, a government that's really deep in the hole to begin with, probably won't last uh, more than two years with a new government coming in that has no real experience. So there's not too much happiness around here these days. For many, Rishi Sunak, uh, as a former chancellor, has the chancellor's disdain for the Defense Department as something that absorbs a lot of money uh, and is always calling for more money uh, that competes against other resources, especially if you're trying to fund the National Health Service or, or what have you. Um, Jim, let me uh, turn to you. Russia uh, has uh, changed its strategy. Uh, it's girding for a Ukrainian assault on Kherson uh, and trying to set the conditions to at least try to defend the, that key southern city as best it can, while also more effectively targeting Ukraine's power and and water systems to drive the population to force the government to stop fighting. And the more pain Ukrainians are subjected to, the easier it is for voices uh, in Washington and in Europe uh, to pressure Kiev into uh, a negotiated 
uh, settlement. We've heard from Charles Kupchin and Peter Beinert making the case uh, in the Times, right? We have to negotiate. This is, you know, cancel culture at work uh, on any voice that says we have to have a negotiated uh, settlement. Where, where do we stand? How do, you, do the attacks change the vector uh, of the conflict? And what, if anything, can the alliance do uh, aside from weapons, right? Sending electrical equipment. I and mean, what, what are the things that the United States or, you know, teams uh, to help um, Ukraine uh, more quickly and effectively restore power, damage power and water grids? Well, a couple of things, Zavago. One is just to back up what Dove said in terms of UK. When I was at the Riga Security Conference a few weeks ago, the uh, allies, and I hear it today too, I see the allies every day here in Washington. They're, they're, they come through and we talk. They're all concerned about the U.S. midterms. That's the first thing they ask. What will be the impact? Uh, and there's, there is a, uh, among even the most sober-minded uh, most um, uh, you know, veteran uh, diplomats that I've been knowing for years, they're all very concerned about our midterms. Uh, so this is, this is something that's gonna uh, royal uh, uh, things in Europe as well politically. But, uh, but in terms of, of the Russian strategy, where they're going, what we should do, et cetera, you know, the Kherson defense, we've, we've, we've known about that. They've been digging in. There's questions about how capable the forces are that are coming to reinforce down in the South. Uh, that's also where some of their uh, best fighters are, uh, as well as a terrain that's meant for the defense. So it's gonna be very hard, but I, I frankly worry more about the strikes that are continuing on the infrastructure um, because we're gonna be faced potentially with a humanitarian um, problem in Ukraine. And you alluded to that in terms of helping them with electrical equipment or whatever it is. But the, um, the site that we will see in February, January, uh, March uh, of freezing households and uh, a run on batteries for fresh for flashlights and candles or whatever it might be, it's going to be uh, really tough. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and helping them deal with those problems is gonna be an, an added dimension uh, for the West in terms of providing assistance. So it won't just be ammunition and high Mars, it's gonna be uh, flashlights, candles and electrical equipment and blankets. I don't know, I don't know what they're being able to do right now to get ready for that, but if it's gonna be a bitter winter uh, and if these strikes continue, it's, it's going to be something that will make it harder to keep everyone together in terms of the West, because it's just one more pressure point uh, that might make uh, Europeans particularly, or here in the US again, depending on our elections, uh, say, you know, this is this is enough. These people have been tortured in Ukraine by these strikes. We're looking at these this humanitarian problem. We need we need to begin to negotiate. Uh, and so your point about Charlie Kupchin and and others who are starting to press on that. Uh, I'm not there uh, in terms of negotiating uh, right now. And, and uh, Ukraine certainly is not. And uh, and uh, President Zelensky is not. But who knows what the situation will be in March. Uh, and the pressures will be intense. So it's really the humanitarian aspect that we could see that worries me the most. And that's what Putin is banking on. Uh, indeed, right? I mean, he's taking uh, a strategic approach to this uh, and recognizing that if he can just scotch this out a little bit further, uh, increase the pain on Ukrainians, um, he can actually change the vector 
uh, of uh, the narrative, which is why I think all of us really have to hang tough. And part of hanging tough, uh, which uh, the NATO Secretary General, who has been extended in his uh, term, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, called on Turkey uh, to um, swiftly ratify uh, Finland and Sweden joining the Atlantic uh, Alliance. Um, where where do we stand on that? Because you know we we always share uh, notes during the course of the week uh, and a kind of an extraordinary video from uh, Turkey's uh, interior uh, minister not being particularly charitable toward the United States uh, and uh, Europe and you know everybody else and that you know Turkey must do what Turkey must do and you know these guys are untrustworthy etc. You know, where, where, where do we stand on getting these two countries into uh, the Atlantic Alliance? Well, you know, the, uh, Erdogan does nothing for free. And, you know, he's not going to uh, have an epiphany and, and, uh, and bring them in and not get something for it. So uh, that, the line that you, we heard from that uh, Turkish minister is the line uh, that's the Turkish line. Uh, they're going to do what Turkey needs to have done. And that means what Erdogan wants done. And I, and I do believe a lot of that rests with the United States. He's got some things he wants from the United States dealing with F-16s and, and other bits of military kit uh, that he wants freed uh, up out of the Congress. And I, I had not seen any sign that the administration is working the Congress over on this to try to make it happen. And there's certainly a lot of stubbornness in the Congress when it comes to Turkey. Uh, and Turkey just makes it worse and worse <laughs> each day. So I really do think that part of the coin of the realm for Erdogan uh, is getting some type of things loosened up from the United States. Secondly, of course, Erdogan's election is coming up uh, and that's how, that's the context for this. If he, uh, if he agrees to the section and brings them in over the, in the next 30 days, will that help or hurt what he's saying in terms of his uh, electioneering um, for his election coming up? That's what he's gonna be thinking about. Is this a thing that's gonna, uh, that can I get something for this that will actually help me in my election uh, in a few months? So, um, so it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, to me and to a lot of us, it's a shameful thing. We want Sweden and Finland to come in. They've been trying to work their issues with Turkey uh, that Turkey has raised. Turkey is not making it easy on them either. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, I tip my hat to the section. He's very good. Uh, dealing with problematic allies. I mean, look how he dealt with the U.S. <laughs> so, uh, so he knows Turkey, uh, and uh, let's see what he can what he can do. But I do think, at the end of the day, the U.S. plays a role in this, and I'm not so sure how successful we're going to be, or even how much attention we're giving to trying to free up something that's going to uh, to make this uh, to make Erdogan uh, change his mind and bring in the, these two allies. You know, at the end of the day, it's not really even changing his mind. He, I, I don't think he cares about bringing these guys in or not. What he really wants is to get something for it. And that's what he's holding out, out on. What am I going to get? And will it help me get reelected? Uh, it is uh, uh, international extortion at its finest. Uh, and if you can pull it off, why wouldn't you? Uh, location, location, location. Um, we're going to change order a little bit. Patrick, you've been very patient, but Dove uh, needs to punch out in a minute. I just wanted to get you uh, to comment a little bit on what uh, Jim had to say, uh, Dove. And then I want to follow up and get your take uh, on what Bibi Netanyahu's return to power means uh, in Israel and not just for Israel, but Israel's relationship with uh, the United States, Europe, as well as Gulf countries, because, you know, there are two of those will be less happy 
and one of them will be a lot more happy. Well, and there's also Russia, but uh, I totally agree with what Jim just said. It's never really been for Erdogan a question of Sweden and Finland per se. It's a question of how do I get reelected in a very tight election? Uh, and frankly, that's also going to be a part of uh, his relationship with Israel. And I'll get back to that. Um, the, first of all, people need to recognize that Netanyahu is, is, first of all, he's got a majority that he's never had in several years. He's got 64 seats and 120 seat uh, a Knesset or parliament. Those are all parties that have nowhere else to go except to stick with him. So that's important in and of itself. It means he's going to be around yet another long while. Of course, he wants to get his bribery charges dropped. He may well get it this time, Parliament will legislate in some way. But even more important than the fate of that individual is that these fascists, neo-fascists, whatever you want to call these, this, this religious Zionist group, which may call itself religious, but isn't really in, you know, whatever the name is, they want three things that are gonna fundamentally change the nature of the state of Israel if they get what they want. First, they wanna treat the Arabs in Israel, their Israeli fellow citizens as second class. Second, they wanna weaken the Supreme Court so that it doesn't have the ultimate authority that it's had since the state was created. And third, they, want, they just don't wanna expand settlements. They want a one state solution and the heck with the Arabs. That's the internal turmoil that they could cause. Then there's the external, which you were talking about, and which is in my uh, article in Today's Hill, which should come out in a couple of hours. He could be jeopardizing the Abraham Accords because those kinds of changes, the treatment of Arab citizens is gonna make it very difficult, not only for countries like Saudi Arabia to join the Accords, but even for, for the, uh, the four Arab countries that are part of the Accords to stay in them. There's only so much resistance they can have against their own peoples. And as it is, at best, 50% of their population support the Accords. And that's at best. And so if any of these things happen domestically in Israel, they could do, go back to where they were, which is essentially cooperating with Israel under the table, but having no formal relations. Which brings me to Mr. Erdogan, who has said he'll respect the election outcome. That's fine, but he hasn't said he'll, he'll continue to support Israel in any way, in any formal way, if they approve these sorts of changes internally. Remember, he still supports the Palestinians very vocally, including Hamas. So he might back away, which brings me to the United States. There is, of course, a lot of support for Israel among even right-wing Republicans. However, not all of them. And the Democrats, Bibi has pretty much ditched them under Obama. It ain't going to get any better with Mr. Biden in the White House, however strong his feelings for Israel are. It could get worse. And if you combine that with a general Republican reluctance to spend money on just about anybody, uh, that could put Israel in a tough bind as well. The one person that Bibi has good relations with, and you're going to choke on this, is Vlad Vladimir Putin. And how much Israel will continue to support Ukraine when the prime minister of Israel had constant contact with Putin is an open question as well. So if you're sitting in the United States and you're a friend of Israel, you got to do a lot of worrying right now. And uh, and it is going to also 
uh, exacerbate what is a growing problem with anti-Semitism anyway, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere. Well, absolutely, because uh, as we've seen this week, and uh, I have a son that lives in New Jersey, and the FBI has just warned all the synagogues in New Jersey to watch out. So you've got that as well. And uh, unfortunately, uh, there are too many people who use uh, their concern about the Palestinians as a vehicle for anti-Semitism, which really is a very different thing. I mean, I totally support a two-state solution for the Palestinians. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that one should go after me because I happen to be Jewish and think there should be a state of Israel. Dove, thanks very much. Uh, pleasure is always having you on the program. Safe travels and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Patrick, you have been uh, exceptionally uh, patient. Uh, thanks very much for bearing with us. Uh, first, uh, do you have anything that you want to add, uh, whether on the domestic political scene, uh, but also on uh, the Russia-Ukraine matter or NATO more broadly? Uh, that that strikes you as interesting as you look at the entire Asia Pacific. Well, I do, although this may be out of uh, out of turn in terms of the order of things. But um, back on the original question of the importance of democracy and democracy under threat, um, you know, separate from President Biden's speech or frankly the speech that the Australian Prime Minister gave as well this week about democracy under threat, the the international level of threat to democracy needs attention, and especially by Americans as we go into this very divisive midterm election, to raise our heads up and, and look over our shores and realize that we are under enormous and growing international pressure to unravel our democracy from revisionist powers. Uh, and this is a real issue. And it was, it was one that was raised this week in town in Washington by the State Secretary of Australia, Mike Paluzzo, who's a great thinker, a great ally. Um, and uh, it should be taken very seriously. So I just want to, you know, that's my public service uh, message for post midterm is just remember the real challenge is overseas, not not here. Um, uh, on the Ukraine issue, one point I would make is from, you know, my messages from uh, that I'm getting from Republican friends is that post midterm and they're expecting a, a, a big win uh, is that there's not going to be a U-turn on Ukraine policy. And I think that should be very reassuring uh, across the Atlantic and globally. Uh, at the same time, there is going to be more sharpening of differences with the Biden administration, with the Democrats. And that does mean budget issues will be more and more uh, contentious on this issue. So it's not all good news. Um, and, and the bigger picture, maybe this is the segue into Asia, is that we're never going to have a single front again. I mean, we are we are now in a multi uh, sort of crisis uh, challenge. Um, and uh, we see this very much. I could start with North Korea talk about Taiwan and China, um, and Ukraine's going to go on, and the Middle East is going to grow as well. So we have multiple challenges we're going to have to be managing here, and we're going to have to be smart, and we're going to have to be more unified uh, on coming up with a strategy to deal with this. Uh, well, I mean, again, um, it's unclear whether or not we're going to be getting any unity anytime soon. And in fact, you could project that this is going to get uh, exponentially worse uh, over over time, rather uh, than better. Let's uh, let's break this up because there was a lot of activity going on uh, in uh, Asia. First, uh, let's uh, talk about the North Korean missile test. First, since uh, 1952, tends uh, to to land in uh, South Korean uh, waters. 
at the time when the United States and South Korea were having their uh, annual uh, dialogue. Uh, North Koreans have a tendency of acting out, especially if there are other distractions happening in the world, whether it's political issues in the United States or uh, Russia, Ukraine. Talk to us about the significance of what the North Koreans uh, did, because it wasn't just cruise missiles. There was a ballistic missile element to this as well, and, and an extremely large, I mean, I think it was the largest ever number of missiles they fired in a compressed period of time. Well, that's right. Um, what we saw on Wednesday was nearly two dozen missiles being fired out of North Korea, uh, some landing in South Korean territorial waters, as you say, for the first time in decades. Uh, we also saw on Thursday a launching of another uh, round of missiles, including an ICBM, apparently a Hwasong-17, that apparently failed in mid-flight as it was heading to Japan, but it still triggered the Japan J-alert. So the sirens went off and the loudspeakers went off in Japan, scaring a lot of Japanese uh, that a missile had just overflown, but in fact, it never reached Japanese waters. Um, that being said, that missile um, barrage this week um, is part of a obviously ongoing you know, annual campaign here, or the year-long campaign by, uh, by Kim Jong-un um, to show off his missiles and to build up his justify basically building up his missile and nuclear camp uh, capabilities. Um, there's a play within a play, which is that today, this Friday, I mean, literally today um, in Korea, um, we, have, we saw dueling Air Force combat exercises. So just as the U.S. and South Korean were finishing up a five-day vigilant storm, biggest ever Air Force drill, 240 aircraft, 1,600 sorties, they extended that because of the ICBM test from North Korea yesterday. And then uh, North Korea responded by uh, activating 150 or so aircraft and conducted air-to-ground uh, bombing drills, uh, but uh, quite uh, north of the tactical action line, so not, not approaching the inter-Korean border the way they did with a few aircraft uh, on a couple of occasions in recent weeks. Um, this is uh, basically back to fire and fury without uh, the political theatrics we had maybe in 2017. And without, uh, and, and frankly, with a stronger alliance, a more unified alliance, we saw that strength coming out of the U.S.-South Korean Security Consultative Meeting, which is the biggest sort of alliance discussion we have with Seoul on the military alliance. Um, and at the Pentagon, Secretary Austin, um, you know, uh, Defense Minister Lee Jong Suk, um, really put out a, an extensive Security Consultative Meeting communique. That I encourage everybody to read online. Um, but it builds off things like the extended deterrence strategy and consultation group talks that are now underway um, and talking about we're going to be forward engaging more strategic assets, meaning aircraft, for instance, that can carry nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula. We're going to be engaging closer planning. And this is this is Minister E's big point, which is that we, we need to go NATO like with the U.S.-Korean alliance. We need to go from the declaratory policy of the nuclear posture view that says Kim Jong-un cannot survive any scenario in which he uses a nuclear weapon. And we actually need to plan and execute closer coordination uh, of U.S. and South Korean uh, capabilities. And I think that's that's going to happen. And by the way, an, the, another summit between uh, and among the Japan, Korean and Japanese leaders, uh, U.S., Japan, Korea leaders will occur uh, in a couple of weeks or less in on the margins of the ASEAN um, leaders meeting uh, in Cambodia. So that's another good sign of coordination. The bottom line here is that, look, U.S. and South Korea have nuclear and conventional superiority over North Korea. Kim Jong-un knows it, but he doesn't like it. And, and unfortunately, we can't, we can't make him stop his nuclear missile campaign. So this fire and fury campaign is now going to move into 
an aggressive protracted phase and we'll have to see at what point there's a diplomatic off ramp if ever on this i suspect it's a long way away i want to ask you uh about uh, the stability of the government uh, in Seoul. Um, and I also want to get to China in, in a minute in the wake of, um, you know, Xi's uh, aggressive breakout uh, from the Chinese Communist uh, Party's uh, Congress uh, last week, uh, or I should say, we, we, well, last week, right at this point, it's the last week. Um, does the Korean administration survive uh, the tragedy uh, of Halloween you know, folks celebrating Halloween, getting trapped in an alley, police being incompetent, uh, and then 150 people sadly being uh, more than 150 crushed to death, no, large number injured. Whenever things like this happen in Korea, whether it's a ferry accident or anything else, it has a tendency of toppling the leadership of the government uh, of, of the country. Um, you know, what's your sense on how this, you know, tragedy may actually influence strategic power politics in the region. Well, it does. The Itaewon, uh, uh, Itaewon uh, tragedy on Halloween, on uh, last Saturday night uh, did kill 156 young people. Uh, awful case. South Korea has been in mourning all week. Um, and, um, and many people didn't expect North Korea to act up, partly because they understand in South Korean politics the need for uh, the mourning period. And, and in fact, North Korea did act up. So yet a further insult there. But will it bring down um, uh, President Yoon? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think he will continue to have uh, lower than he, uh, you know, uh, popularity rates than he'd like. Um, but he's been a strong leader, and he's going to continue to be in place. I think we do have to worry about the weakness of our democratic leaders in South Korea, in Japan, where Prime Minister Kishida is still reeling from the Unification Church scandal there. Um, President Biden, after the midterm elections, um, you know, so in UK, as we heard from from Dove, I mean, there are problem, real problems in some of the key democracies right now in terms of the, the strength and unity of the leadership. And yet, on the foreign and security policy, on North Korea policy, on dealing with China, there's actually growing unity. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I'm certainly hopeful that um, President Yoon will be able to carry on and 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 enact the kind of strengths, uh, strengthening of the alliances that he seeks. Um, but I don't expect his popularity to go up uh, very much, uh, and it may go down further, partly because of this. As you mentioned, the ferry incident really did, um, you know, hurt uh, the administration before last, and um, the last administration has been hurt by its own sort of uh, clamp down on um, the uh, uh, on the killing of a fisherman, for instance. And so it, it has these domestic issues can really undermine. Uh, foreign and defense policy. But I, in this case, I see the foreign and defense policy as still being the one area where they can agree across the aisle in, in South Korea for the most part, um, provided uh, South Korea doesn't seem to be provoking the crisis, but North Korea rather is provoking the crisis. North Korea is trying to say, by the way, that you know you, you allies have gone to an uncontrollable stage of uh, exercising. We can't take this anymore. That's why I'm launching all these aircraft and that's why I'm doing these things. But let's remember that North Korea is the one that had the big air drill a month ago. North Korea has been on the missile campaign since the beginning of this year, including seven ICBM tests this year um, and dozens of dozens of missiles, ballistic and cruise. Um, so and firing into the uh, artillery, into the maritime buffer zone in violation of the comprehensive military agreement with South Korea. 
um, firing a missile into South Korean territorial waters and so on. So the, you know, the aggressors here would love to be seen as the victims, but in fact, they are acting up and they know and they're testing maybe the weakness or the strength, if you will, of the, our democracies, in this case, the South Korean government of President Yoon, who has the full backing of Japan and, and the United States, which is uh, a highly unusual uh, coalition right now in terms of that strength. Um, let me ask you uh, two uh, quick uh, questions. One is uh, on Xi, uh, what are some of the messages we're seeing from the Chinese leader coming out of the party conference? Because he is uh, continuing his aggressive hardline stance. Well, he is. He's obviously strengthened coming out of the 20th National Congress that he orchestrated so well. And um, now he's on a diplomatic offensive. And so this diplomatic offensive even began before the party Congress. If you go back and remember his trip to Kazakhstan, which is where he launched part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And he did that while he was going to the um, Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit. Um, he'll be going to Indonesia in a couple of weeks uh, for the G20 meeting. But that's also where he launched the other part of the Belt and Road Initiative for the maritime uh, sort of uh, highway. And um, this is part of his active diplomatic offensive that he's now engaged in. He, he, he had the leader of Vietnam come to Beijing, first of all, party to party affinity, shake hands and talk about their cooperation, wanted to plant in the minds of Hanoi the idea that you can't trust the West. They want regime change with their democracy. You can only trust us. But in fact, the Vietnamese are smarter than that. They they actually know what balance of power is all about, and they understand about protecting their sovereignty, and they know that the last hot war that China fought was against them. Um, but but Germany, it's not not as clear. And so as you know, Chancellor Schultz is in Beijing today uh, with his business delegation. All eyes are on Germany um, as she tries to woo um, the Germans to uh, double down on some of their big investments uh, and big, and some of the big firms are doubling down on those investments, even while the general mood in Germany and across Europe is let's not become more dependent. Let's become less dependent on these big powers that are revisionist. We've seen what Russia has done uh, with our dependence. So let's, let's wind this down. So Schultz is on a very defensive, difficult uh, mission here. Um, but Xi, Xi Jinping is going to play it up. He's going to play it up when he goes to Indonesia, obviously, when he meets with the G20 leaders, when he meets with ASEAN leaders in, in Cambodia. Um, and I think this is what the Biden administration is now responding to. So this month is really, uh, from the White House perspective, get the president in a position of less weakness. That's going to be hard after the midterm elections, frankly. But overseas, at least play the strongest hand you can. Um, both test Xi Jinping, whether he's serious about any kind of breathing space on cooperation, on nuclear weapons, on nuke, on North Korea, um, on you know, risk reduction over Taiwan, climate change, food security, interest rates, other issues. Um, but at the same time, recognize we are in this uh, diplomatic contest with, with uh, Xi Jinping um, and make sure the president comes out of this uh, convincing Indo-Pacific region and the G20 members as best as he can, that the United States is confident, strong, moving ahead, even though we didn't have the theatrics of an orchestrated party Congress the way Xi Jinping can do with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, the fundamentals of the United States are stronger. Authoritarian leaders uh, ultimately fail. Um, you know, Xi's making a lot of bad decisions about the economy in China, and they're very worried about the, the economic headwinds they face for property sector tanking. Uh, right. with debt and so on. So there are some very strong messages here, but the fact is Xi Jinping is, you know, he's 
pressing key countries right now for greater independence. Don't be part of an international coalition against China. Apply the brakes on this aggressive uh, move to stop China's rise. And the U.S. is doing almost the opposite of that, trying to say, look, we have to be very concerned about an aggressive China's role in the region and the world, changing the rules. Um, it's in everybody's interest uh, to, or almost everybody's interest, to preserve rules of the road, preserve autonomy and sovereignty. And the best way to do that is to stand up to malign behavior. Um, let me ask you uh, one last uh, question very briefly, because we're almost out of time. Um, Last week was the, or this week was uh, the Naval Submarine League's annual conference. Uh, always uh, a great opportunity to hear from the community about the challenges uh, it faces, opportunities, you know, kind of give a, a snapshot. Uh, and obviously, you can't be reminded, uh, you know, when, when you're in the um, you know, a conference hall with submariners from some of our, you know, not just the United States, but our closest allies and partners, not to think about the AUKUS deal uh, uh, among the United States, uh, the United Kingdom uh, and Australia, where, you know, you've had, as you mentioned, recent interaction with uh, senior Australian leaders. Where, where do we stand on this? Because AUKUS looks like it might be bearing more fruit in almost every other field than delivering a nuclear submarine where the challenges are still pretty significant. And and the clock winds down, right? I mean, they they have to get their report out uh, in a couple of months. Yeah, I think senior officials in the administration um, would probably agree with the idea that um, they are under the gun. They know they only have a few months by spring to announce some options, what they're going to do on a nuclear-powered submarine uh, for Australia, as well as other measures they'll be taking on, on high technology cooperation in general. They think they've got some very exciting options that they're going to uh, reveal to us in the, in the coming months. We'll see. Um, we got people like Abe Denmark at the Pentagon helping to push this forward. He was brought on only a couple of months ago. He's a tremendously uh, experienced uh, strategist in hand, um, helping that uh, along with what the White House is doing and, and the rest of the government. Um, so I'm optimistic they're going to come up with some interesting ideas to put out there. So you know, reports that this is somehow dead in the water are completely wrong. Um, Yet, uh, criticism that we won't be fielding submarines in, you know, that are built by Australia in the 2020s are absolutely true. But that was always going to be the case. This is this is a long-term high-tech partnership. Um, I think there will be some interesting op options for submarines and other assets. We talked about building a hangar uh, in Tendal Air Base, for instance, uh, but maybe other submarines from the U.S., from the U.K., and others could be based in Australia. There may be other high technology moves. Um, one author said we should be talking about bombers. Fine. I think that could be on the table too. But the Australians are fully invested in AUKUS. That's the thing to make, you know, make sure, you know, listeners know, Vago, is that Australia's they've put their money down. They're, they are going ahead with this. US is following up. It has strong bipartisan support. Yes, there are lots of hurdles. Yes, this is long term. And there are a lot of people who would oppose this, especially China. Um, and so it's very important to find practical ways to make this alliance stronger, to grow Australia's uh, strategic technical expertise, to bring to bear to deterrence and peace in, in the Indo-Pacific. The only thing I would point out to everybody is folks think that we have a bigger window with the Chinese than we actually do. We need to be investing money. We have to spend money to save money. And the notion of moving sort of more slowly, more timidly, not filling up depleted weapon stocks, uh, you know, uh, is 
um, is is a bit alarming, right? And so we yeah. want to see speed. We understand the need for trade offs, and you know we have to you know divest to invest, but we have to be doing this with a lot more alacrity. Um, you know, I understand we're focusing on next generation weapons. We want to pause the current generation. If we have an opportunity to buy thousands of Jasm ERs and LRASMs, and I'm not getting anything from Lockheed Martin, nor am I trying to sell anything for Lockheed Martin. Having a great air breathing uh, hypersonic capability in bulk is important, but you just, you know, you, I'd, I'd rather us, uh, you know, what, what the founder of the EU said, I'd rather have 10,000 more tanks than one tank too few when I need it. And this is one of those uh, instances. So I hope that uh, this is done in the spirit of alacrity and and not thinking, okay, we've got until the 2040s in order to do this, because I don't think that matches the Chinese timeline. We just don't have the industrial base we need for the era we're in. And this is not going back exactly to the late 1930s, but we are in a very competitive, very threatening era. And our industrial base is just not uh, running on the kind of capacity we need. Uh, so it's, it should be obvious out of the Ukraine war, just how quickly things can be depleted. So put this in multiple theaters, new crises, new challenges, even short of major war, and you can see how quickly we run short. And that could open us up to coercion, blackmail, uh, and loss of influence. Um, again, uh, it's a question of investment, and it's being penny-wise, pound-foolish. If you recognize you don't have the industrial base, we recognize we didn't have the industrial base more than a decade ago. And there were those voices who were calling for the investment in the industrial base. We don't have enough capacity now to generate sea power. So we don't have the industrial capacity to, uh, to do, you know, to keep the ships that we have in the fleet. We don't have enough maintenance budget. This is all low hanging fruit as far as I'm concerned. So I hope Michael uh, members are listening uh, that you may have to spend more money and do it dramatically now to avert a war that actually will be more expensive. It would have been cheaper to have deterred Russia from going into Ukraine in the first place, as opposed to then fighting uh, a war. And that's the biggest problem with autocrats. Anyway, I'm, I'll get off my soapbox. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it, guys. Thanks very, very much. Hope you guys have a great day, uh, a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.